Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Kevin Funk, writer and director of the acclaimed short films A Fine Young Man, Yellowhead, and Bison, as well as a number of pretty clever music videos for bands like The Zolas, Braids, The Mounties, and A Tribe Called Quest. His first feature, Hello Destroyer, is now playing in Toronto and Ottawa and opens in Vancouver later this month. Kevin picked Safe, Todd Haynes' devastating study of a Los Angeles woman whose perfectly manicured life begins to unravel when she develops an inexplicable and apparently untreatable illness, featuring a magnificent performance from Julianne Moore's The Disintegrating Carol White and an almost inescapable sense of dread. This is a merciless, utterly unnerving psychological drama. Released in 1995, it's only grown more unsettling in the ensuing decades, and eh, there are some pretty good reasons why. This is someone else's movie. There's a couple things about Safe. I mean, it's probably the sing- single film that I think has most formally influenced my own work at this point. But okay. more importantly, um, it's a film that, uh, outside of any interest in like film criticism or intellectualizing the content or experience of watching it, it was such a visceral experience for me, um, first and foremost. Um, I ended up, I think I've written like four different papers in university about this film, like one each year um, in, in different ways of looking at it. But uh, but the first time I saw it, I was working classic, like working at a video store. It was sort of before Safe had had its kind of resurgence of celebration and picked it up as... I knew Todd Haynes' work and I'd already seen... Uh, I definitely had seen Velvet Goldmine and Far From Heaven. I don't think I'd seen Poison yet, uh, but I know I'd seen those two, which, you know, obviously have more... Um, more attention and I, I um I don't think don't look or I'm sorry I, I think I'm not there wasn't out yet but anyhow I, I literally like picked it off her shelf and it was uh that old cover of like the one the weird character right, the, walker. The, the walker um which is like actually a pretty terrible cover uh, but the, the criterion one's much better but yeah I picked it up watched it and uh was really profoundly affected in a way that was super emotional um, and in, a, in an emotional way that is like even hard to sort of articulate or um, intellectualize in, in the fact that um, it was incredibly unsettling, um, but in a way that felt like reflective and illuminating from my own sort of experience. Like there was a degree of immediacy that was just so powerful when I watched that film. I mean, I had... Um, this I, I had experienced. I had a year in my first year of university where I had like anxiety attacks um, uh, for a while, and um, it's not something. It was like a bit of an apparition in my life. It was about a year that I had them pretty badly, and it hasn't really been an issue so much since. But I saw that film uh, after that, and there was something so pitch perfect in a really disturbing way about so much of how that film felt when I was watching that, that there was this, you know, there's that resonance that's so close to your own experience that that was sort of my first into that film is, was just, just that. Um, and then, um, and, and so I sort of fell in love with it just in terms of completely an emotional response the first time. Um, and, and obviously a lot of the ideas that I'm so fascinated in, it now, whether they're formal ones or thematic ones, were there and I was interested in it, but that was not the initial impulse of it, where there's other films where that is the first thing. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's like one that I often go back to when if I think about like, what is my favorite film? You know, like, there's those have sort of shifted throughout my life, but I think at like this juncture in my life, I would probably list that film as that, which is sort of why I thought it'd be worth talking about. Yeah. Well, it's it's a great choice uh, from my point of view because it's only more relevant now. It's the kind of film mm. that uh, that speaks to the the general disquiet of American life. That sounds incredibly pretentious, but that's yeah. what it's about. It's yeah. it's about the idea that you're not happy even though you have everything, and then on top of that, your body is destroying itself. Mm-hmm. The, the the mysterious invasion of Carol mm-hmm. White's life by whatever it is that's happening to her, which is never defined, never explained, never even yeah. really spelled out to the audience. 
in terms of symptoms. Yeah. Everything just yeah. gets worse. Yeah. And 10 years after the advent of AIDS, it was not that. Yeah. So your, your mind is looking for causes and you're constantly trying to figure out what's happening. As a, as a passive viewer in 1995, it was incredibly unnerving to just watch Julianne Moore become less mm-hmm. on screen and have that be the disease, whatever yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah. And so sitting through it then was disturbing and distressing. And now I turn around and we're watching people offer... I mean, th- th- it predates the internet. That's the thing yeah. that fascinates me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you can Google your symptoms and come up with... Well, it's always cancer, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. it Every is. Time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's either cancer or you have to uh, reboot your computer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whatever the problem is, that's the YouTube <laughs> Or some combination. <laughs> yeah. But the idea of having fewer resources is actually more disturbing. Yeah. Because not only can she not put a name to what's happening to her, she's vulnerable to whatever is presented to her. Mm-hmm. So just strictly from a plot perspective, that's unnerving and disturbing and terrifying. Yeah. But seeing it in the present day context, I'm amazed no one has tried to do a version of it because, or maybe it's just too easy because it's mm. happening all the time. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating film. And I think talking about the way that it's aged is is very interesting. Because I, like I, since I saw it, I've been pretty obsessed with the, this film and it was like really interesting to watch it sort of like garner this new sort of um, appreciation and acclaim yeah. like like it sort of had like I think five years ago it started to be like a cool a very cool film yeah as you mentioned it was gone for a while like it was totally I was yeah. stunned to find out that yeah. the DVD had been out of print yeah it was like yeah. as safe was the Jason Statham movie um, <laughs> you know, um, the Jason Statham action movie um, but uh, yeah it was like it, it essentially completely disappeared I mean, like some of Todd, a lot of Todd's earlier stuff is uh, is remarkably hard to find for us. Mm-hmm. Like obviously Karen Carpenter for for uh, obvious reasons, but even Poison is like ridiculously hard film yeah. to find. Didn't Fox Lerber have the rights for a while, and then it just sort of never got remastered or something? Yeah, and apparently I talked to a few different video stores. Apparently for some reason that like I went to rent it in Vancouver when I was st- when video stores still existed, yeah. uh, and you had to put down a fifty dollar deposit because it gets stolen all the time for some reason, which yeah. uh, maybe you know. Unscrupulous film students. Who yeah, just yeah. Who should who should know better and be a part of the <laughs> the greater good? But apparently they're not. But no, I I think the fact that uh, it's a really interesting comment on the film, how well it's aged, and and the fact that it's probably become more interesting and more relevant. I I always thought that, you know, I saw it. Obviously, I was I'm born in in eighty six, and so you know I saw it. Um, I, I probably saw it in like two thousand and five or six for the first time okay. somewhere in there i can't remember exactly but like the the backdrop uh of aids was really not part of my experience of seeing that film sure, at all. Yeah. you know um it really didn't even cross my mind all that much obviously i knew todd haynes and uh and knew his history and some of his interests but it was not something that was on my mind when i was watching that film um and that's what i think is really interesting i, I actually think that uh, you know, I've read a lot about the film subsequently because that's what you do, I think, when, when sure. you're interested in something. You, you kind of ingest everything about it. And I think that the... I wouldn't call it reductive, but I think that the... Um, because I know that there, there's a lot of that DNA in it, um, you know, and I'm not trying to change what Todd set out to do with the film, but I, I think that it's... it's um, less interesting to look about it, look at the film just as a as a way to look at... America grappling with with the AIDS epidemic right, and right. and tied specifically to that like and and I know that like a lot of the ideas came from that but even he, listening to Todd Haynes talk about it I feel like again it's one of those things where the ideas maybe come out of the experience of living through that thing but there are all these parallels that are applicable to so many other um, experiences sure, and especially yeah. this it's it's a very interesting film I think it's one of the most interesting films on privilege um that's ever been made um in 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 terms of like an articulate criticism of privilege as well because one of the things that i also saw or i also felt that always fascinated me about this film is that i remember watching it and thinking sort of you know from my 
my how I grew up in a sort of you know very liberal sort of liberal thinking family that's a lot about you know critical engagement with issues and critical thinking and that type of thing. I remember feeling that the film was headed in a certain direction that she in a healing direction, right, where she actually does get healed. Yeah. And one of the things that I love so much is the one of the things that I've grown to appreciate more and is now probably one of my favorite parts of the film is there is this great sub- subversion of expectation in the second half where you, she sort of reaches this um, almost farcical, uh, but but very true in a lot of ways, uh, sort of liberal haven, um, which is as terrifying and as problematic as her sort of, as the suburban sort of nightmare that she's living in as well which again like I, I I sort of had this expectation that there would be some sort of not like a clean resolution but that there that it was sort of that it was headed in a direction that was going to talk about this idea that you know the toxicity of like suburban America you right. know and that was the criticism of it right. um, and and those experiences and the fact that um, it and, and it does in many ways but the fact that it sort of pulls um, again, subverts that expectation and pulls that back around, I think is one of the things that makes the film so much more interesting. Yeah. The the contemporary reading would simply be that she's being poisoned by corn syrup in the food. You know, like the, the, the general uh, ugliness of America. Yeah. Or you, yeah. you can read exactly. that metaphor into it. And the fact that it's set in 1987 in the Reagan era where everything is still kind of perfect for her. Yeah. Specifically. Yeah. Yeah. And... She's in her not, place. Yeah, yeah. She is not suffering from whatever else is happening in the country. That's why I think that's where the AIDS analogy fits best because it was this mm-hmm. plague that affected everybody who was vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, yeah. so no matter how rich, like Rock Hudson, right? No matter how rich you are, no matter how well placed you were, you were still going to get this thing that couldn't yeah. be stopped. But without the... Yeah. When you, when you remove the possibility that the crunchy granola folks are going to save her. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you make that, that compound really ambivalent in its purpose. And, and the hugely that, so. Yeah. That yeah. you can't necessarily, that maybe she's putting her faith in the wrong thing. It's terrifying. It's actually more unnerving to know that there is no one you can trust mm-hmm. that she can trust. Uh, and by that point we are fully on her side because I think it's it's pretty clear early on that whatever's happening to her, psychosomatic or otherwise, she's suffering. Yeah, and so regardless of whether those are, yeah, more literal conditions exactly, that are yeah. like prescribed conditions or could be prescriptive, uh, or yeah, more psychosomatic in, yeah. in that. Yeah, and, and Moore is such an appealing actor, and and at that point was just was a relatively fresh face. I don't, yeah. I think I'd seen her in Vanya and Shortcuts and. Yeah. and it's like a, a a pretty extraordinary performance, and I mean that in that I would measure it among my very very favorites in terms of, uh, and and this, these are where like some of the things I get interested in 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 terms of the formal qualities of how the film is executed, um, and something I've always really loved about the film and has certainly shaped my own cinema in terms of something I try to tend toward. Like one of my biggest problems with with cinema, even like films that I. I think are good films or interesting films. And certainly I'm not talking exclusively about Hollywood. I'm talking like in an indie sphere and that type of thing is, is, um, is that cinema, uh, is so tied to tradition, traditions of cinema. And it's a, it's a very self-referential medium. Um, and the biggest thing that, I guess there's this thing that cinema and the mechanics of cinema are so like omnipresent in terms of the media that we've all grown up on and consumed that like you don't have to be someone who is in film studies to understand the mechanics of the way story operates most of the time, you know? And, you know, and, and I don't think, I think, yes, as a filmmaker, you should know why three act structure is important and you should know how it operates. But I think you can pick up anyone off the street and they understand the way that, that operates in a general sense. You know, they maybe they are they can't articulate it the same way that someone who who studies that can. But the reality is, you sort of know those beats. And to me, I can often watch good stuff and and work that has great performances, interesting subject matter, but it gets tied into um, it gets tied into like a narrative structure that is um, that that. No matter how many different moving parts you take in and out, there's a there's an inevitability to everything that you're seeing, and that right. is like, and there's that's a sliding scale of of how extreme it is. But like one of the things that I love to have 
in in watching anything is is to have that have ways that fundamentally change that. And one thing that I think is so interesting about this film, which is something that I was interested in in my my film, is having a protagonist who has relatively little agency in in terms of everything is sort of affecting that person, but they're not doing... I mean, you can you can say there's a degree of agency in her making the choice to go to, at the one point, to go to the, the camp to get help and that sort of thing. But most of what happens to her in that film uh, is reactive. She's reacting yeah. to things that are happening to her. And, and added to that, I love that, again, in terms of the crisis in this film, th- that... That force, um, in terms of this antagonistic force, is something that is indescribable and invisible, but incredibly present, you know, and, and validated too. Like, like we feel it. It's not just sort of like a a conceptual thing that's you feel it emotionally. It emotionally resonates that way. And to me, I think that there's. Um, a degree that is much closer to reality in that in that proposition, as opposed to a standard setup of protagonist and antagonist, and and I mean that in the way that like I, I'm just not a, a firm believer in in good and evil. Um, I think that that is like a ridiculous construct, more or less, um, and I think that the ambiguity that that ends up providing is so wonderful in that film because it. To me, it's it's a very compelling element to follow throughout the film in terms of, um, in terms of, if if she's lacking that agency and she's reacting so much more, and then she's reacting to a force that uh, is is omnipresent in so many ways, but also impossible to define. That as a viewer, to me, is so compelling because I'm so curious to follow how this actually unfolds. You know, sure, yeah, and 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 you do that with a still very satisfying ending because the end of the film, you sure is like very ambiguous, but it seems completely appropriate to what we've experienced, and it seems to summarize that film, like th- that refrain she has to herself about loving herself in the end when she's like so sort of fragile and like really wilting away in front of you is like remarkably haunting and does a nice job of summarizing that but again it's just that that is like a conceptual construct that i think is so interesting about that film and and a really like important compelling part of what i find super interesting and what like i really think about when i start writing myself and and start to start thinking of of story and and a way to tell story myself yeah well of course if you if you begin with a concept that is loose enough that it could be anything and it could be anyone mm-hmm. to then whittle it away. That's that's the thing that really gripped me the most. I saw it theatrically with a crowd that had no idea how to process it. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, other than the idea that they did not like the room tone. <laughs> it's the sound or the absence of sound, the, the way that... It well, we can talk about out. this because this is like my yeah. favorite formal quality. Go on, but yeah, this is no, my no. favorite formal quality. Drove people insane. Mm. You could see, I, I saw it at the Bloor and I sat far enough back because that's where the sweet spot for the speakers was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in the day where you actually couldn't understand the dialogue if you were upstairs or on the right side of the theater. Okay, yeah. They've since fixed it, but oh, kids, you have no idea. It was, yeah, a, yeah. It was a losing <laughs> idea. So I was sitting in, in a good spot for the sound, but that meant I could actually see the audience play. Yeah, yeah. See it work yeah. with the audience. And... There was people there were squirming and yeah. there was some tension in necks and things and you could really feel that the audience did not like having to squirm. Yeah. The idea that the movie is going to trap you in this space with this person and then make you feel the air mm-hmm. is just ugh, and fingernails on a chalkboard. And Haynes is so good at that. And I remember when the laser disc came out, I listened to it with the headphones just yeah. to hear how it worked. Yeah, yeah. Because it was so fascinating to me that at a time when sound reproduction, you know, if you were Spielberg, you had Dolby Digital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nobody yeah. else did. In yeah. 1995, it was... Especially still, in the indie. I can only imagine yeah, what that was would have been like, tool-wise. Yeah, I remember, I think it was Scorsese saying in 87 that he had a choice that he could make The Last Temptation of Christ for $6.5 million, uh, with stereo sound or $6.5 million with a better... I, maybe it was film stock or something, and he chose stereo because he wanted the score to whip through the theater. Yeah. And then almost 10 years later, here's Todd Haynes making the same kind of choice. It's like, I'm going to use sound in an assaultive fashion in a way that most audiences aren't ready for at the mm-hmm. time. Like that, This was almost unprecedented. Totally. I, th- was, I still think it's fairly unprecedented now. Like it, It's not something that... attention to it. Yeah, not, not that many people... I mean, 
that was that was a thing that I like truly fell in love with and then became like a formal thing that I just like constantly rip off because I'm so interested in the way that sound is used in that film. It's it is the to me it is like the the main masterstroke of direction that I love the most. I, I the film is full of like I think it's one of the most exquisitely directed films um personally, but uh, the particular use of sound especially in being so aware of how important it would be to articulate the story that you're telling um, and being so aware of that from the beginning is so important because sound has this, um, especially sound design, it has this incredible ability to alter our experience in such a profound, immediate way while still being so invisible, you know, and and still being really... um, eclipsed in a certain sort of way like you feel that's that's what i find so interesting about it you can make the audience like feel so much but you do it in a way that they i I think that they're not processing how they're because like i think that like degree of anxiety and like Mm -hmm. discomfort which is brilliant because you're essentially projecting carol's um experience and her her sort of you know her terror uh on to the audience quite directly like that was my experience like when i first watched it and didn't really realize it's like things um the scene where she uh where she's driving and it's the exhaust you know and the coughing and then when she's at the dry cleaners yeah. i think there's a vacuum on yeah. maybe there yeah it's the scene i always think yeah of. which is just extraordinary and th- those are like more obvious ones there's a couple i think it's when she's sitting down having milk um, when the maids are in the background talking, which again, like that as mise-en-scene, if we just, we could talk like, like, <laughs> like that is so extraordinary, that scene in terms of like, again, this is a sound design thing as well with a sort of like nod to her privilege and her detachment in terms of hearing, not even really seeing, but sort of just hearing this Spanish being spoken in the background yeah, of those two women. Almost like a hum. Perhaps. Like a hum. Like you don't need, like they're. She doesn't understand it, so we're not. Yeah, and then we don't it. understand it either. And, I mean, there's a few times he actually uses airplanes as well, like like as a repeated motif, which mm-hmm. I think is like extraordinarily beautiful and really, really, especially for something. I think that one is especially like maybe a bit sassy, but it works so well in terms of the idea of like the one thing you try and avoid in location sound all the time. Right. But it works so well as like this thing that is in reality constantly there and part of our daily lives, but he's able to subvert it and, and use it in this really effective way, I think, as again, those forces that are out there that are sort of on top of her, you know what I mean? That she doesn't, that are are not particularly visible. And again, like, I think it's just such an effective thing and it's used so well in that film to create this really challenging, interesting ambiguity that keeps the audience um, on their toes. Like, the, I can't even remember if the film, does the film have score in it? I think there must be some. I think there must be. I want to say there is. I'm going to slowly pick up the criteria (laughs) and open the package to read. No, no, but the fact that both you and I can't call to mind. Yeah. uh, I've seen the movie so many times. You know what I mean? Music composer and performer, Ed Tomney, but I don't remember it. Yeah, but, you know, I feel like if I watch this again right now, I've seen it a million times, but I feel like if I watch it again right now, there's probably more score than I remember in my mind uh, being in the film. I just, yeah, I'm. I remember my impression of it is oppressive silence broken by quiet whispers of dialogue. Exactly, exactly. And it's like, again, I just think silence is just one of these incredibly interesting underutilized tools that does really... Because I think what is so interesting about silence is thinking, thinking about film is something where the audience is interacting, where you're handing agency back to the audience. Mm. There is something um, very interesting about sitting in a quiet audience with people, you know, like in terms of just the discomfort that that gives you. Um, And I think that it's used to such intelligent effect. And I mean, it obviously worked for me sitting and watching. I've seen it. I've seen like, uh, I've seen it in a theater. I've, I've got to see like a retrospective uh, print of it when they did it. I think, I think it was at the Cinematheque. Um, but I still felt that just watching it on your own. Like that, the oppressiveness of silence is, I think, so, so much more effective and so more, so much more profound than, um, you know, the scary sort of co- compositional music of like terror coming to, you know, lurking around the corner to, to sort of consume you. Yeah. And having just picked up the Blu-ray, I noticed it's in mono. 
which Interesting. I don't remember either. I yeah. guess the, maybe the quote was about mixing rather than stereo, but... I guess we have... Um, I, I guess it's good we have this DVD or yeah. <laughs> this Blu-ray here. I'm, I'm stunned because I do remember the sound being particularly effective, although maybe I guess if the same sound is pumping out of all the speakers, then you do get a more oppressive experience. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it would be an amazing thing to hear like just a... I would love just a single commentary track about sound design, like with the sound designer and, and Todd Haynes on that, in terms of just like even just a nerdy technical one on achieving effect. Because, yeah, it, it's the thing that to me, you know, again, like it, it's also something I thought about in my own film um, is, you know, what do you do when you have a protagonist who... Um, by virtue of that character is incredibly inarticulate and doesn't know really how to express themselves. And that is part of the challenge of your, your character that they're working through. And, you know, that's a big part of Carol's problem too. Like for one, she doesn't know what is wrong with her. Uh, so obviously you have a challenge in articulating that, but she also is, you know, a part of a, a sect of society that we understand, um, is probably not that communicative on deeper <laughs> issues, right, yeah. you know what I mean? And ironically, same with um, same with the sort of the more like hippie commune group at the end either. Like that, so much of the dialogue is wonderfully superficial in terms of this sort of just like new agey, um, super like sort of surface speak, you know, that does, that isn't really like anywhere close to to deeper real therapy it's almost because she's being talked to so much there you know it's not really about her expressing herself so again it's one of these things of like when you do that you know you have to use the formal tools you have at your disposal in terms of visual language and and with sound to express so many of those things that your characters are not expressing verbally and and again like that's one of those things where i think this film does such an extraordinary job of that and i definitely um definitely feel like I, I stole that as just like something to think about and just well just in terms of like a basic element of storytelling that it, it can be so much more effective and I think it also leaves space for like I know this is what it was like for me in terms of my own experience which you know is very different than than Carol's experience but my own experience with anxiety um is that amount of space has a really interesting effect, I think, on the audience in terms of allowing them to project themselves onto the character yeah. and put themselves in that space, which changes the experience in quite a way. Because I think the subjectivity of watching that film is altered pretty dramatically because you're placed at the center of it all of a sudden. And that's one of those things I love about being able to make work that um, maintains that degree of ambiguity. Like, I'm someone who, I don't know, I'm someone who really likes... Um, ambiguity with intention like I I and you know I, I could I'm sure I have a lot of film friends who will just completely disagree with me um that that, that I would argue more on the art for art's sake type of thing and I can understand that and I appreciate a lot of that but I am definitely someone who in terms of my own subjective preference really I love work that uh, has enough room for me to have my own opinion and uh, interpretation and understanding, but that I also feel that there is some intention to the decisions that are made. That they that there isn't like this ambivalence or flippantness to um, to the decisions that are being made. That like to me that always bothers me, and that's a bit of a pet peeve. Um, but again. That's an opinion, because that, that's a broad, <laughs> a broad scope of conversation there, in in terms of uh, the merits uh, of of either one of those. But again, so this is why this film is like so um, special and significant to me because of that impulse, which is something I really love. I think like. I can't think of a film that more masterfully um, works in that way in terms of having a huge amount of space for the viewer um, and, and really trusting the viewer in a lot, in a lot of ways, um, but also challenging the viewer and, and, and giving you something to work with and work out, which is, you know, um, such a f great fundamental quality of that film. Yeah. And the, and, and Haynes as a semiotician becomes even more interesting when you look at the, deliberate ambiguities he's placed mm -hmm. uh even like even the name carol white yes it signifies white privilege and, yeah. and her wasp status and yeah. how she's never really been touched by anything yeah. but it also yeah as you say it makes her a blank white is an empty space and so mm -hmm. you can fill that in with whatever you feel 
is appropriate. We bring our own biases, all the ones I just listed, for example, and mm-hmm. how I perceive her. Uh, she's, but she is protected. She's affluent. She's she's comfortable. She's taken care of. She doesn't seem to do anything. She doesn't no, the pass- have a the passivity of her, like even from again, it's like a masterstroke of direction of just giving you so much information. Even that, like, like really disquieting, like sort of. I think it's maybe the second shot of the film, the sex scene at the beginning where she's like almost this empty vessel you know what i mean which is she's just there yeah she's just there you know what i mean and like even the the sort of like strange pat on the back that is like really removed from any degree of intimacy like about as far it's like less intimate than just not doing anything there's something there's something about that that is like so beautiful and, and and incredible but again like like she is just this remarkable She's like this remarkable articulation of sort of like a vacuum of a character in terms of like us. And and it's I I think this is also like to Haynes's credit but also Julian Moore's um is oh, it's yeah. amazing Moore, Moore to have is a essential. Well, it's amazing yeah. to have a character who in so many ways you need to have her be so empty and so uh like almost a ghost of herself, you know? But at the same time, she doesn't feel like an empty character, you know. Like we, we, I, I think you, you feel so much of her humanity there, even if we feel like she's such a blank canvas in terms of, um, in terms of a life that she has lived, or you know, like that she is like the most sort of vanilla, bland type of character that you possibly could have. But at the same time, it's counterbalanced by this remarkable degree of psychological complexity of her character. And and that is like an incredible tension that I think is remarkably difficult to navigate. Certainly is something that comes a lot out of the writing and direction, but I I, I can't imagine what how flat this film would fall with a lesser actress. Yeah. You know? I, I have I have wanted I've interviewed more a number of times over the years and I've never gotten around to we've talked about Safe, mm-hmm. but I've never gotten around to asking her the key questions about how she found this performance Mm. because what she has to do what you have to do as an actor to intellectualize suffering Mm -hmm. so you can play it in the way that she does because it's almost there's this weird thing that people do we've all been in rooms with people who've become very ill very quickly yeah and your body goes into a kind of a diagnostic thing and the eyes go blank and you, you're clearly not, you're, you're present, you're fully present in your body trying to figure out what's happening, but it reads like a stroke or an episode or something. And she doesn't do that. She does something else. She does this raw animal panic that immediately recedes mm. and she tries to cover mm-hmm. it up. And that's so unnerving mm-hmm. in the split second every time it passes over her face because it tells you everything. It tells you that she doesn't have any clue what's happening to her she can't even process it she can't feel it she can't understand it and the more that happens the more monstrous the more horrific the film becomes and nothing is happening Mm -hmm. absolutely nothing is happening it's all contained in her body yeah i mean i think the scene that like perfectly articulates what you're talking about and is like the one that i do count as my favorite scene in the film just in terms of the most memorable is the birthday party scene Mm -hmm. which like that like slow push in on her um is like the degree of emotional range that (laughs) you journey through on that dolly shot um with her doing nothing but sitting still um and slowly boiling away yeah is fucking extraordinary like i just i like that's like one of those things where i don't care how good of a director you are like you're not directing that you know like that is something that comes from your performer and you have to trust your performer to get there and do that um sure there are element there's great again there's great sound design in that scene that makes it very um very unnerving the 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 shot itself is an extraordinary uh, shot. Um, the strange comforting too, you know, which is is like really interesting as well because it's it it shows the I think the comforting of her friends there also sort of shows the isolation because it's like this again strange sort of pat on the back, hand on the arm. It's not like a, a full bodied embrace. Or it's not connected again. It's not connected to intimacy. I think like yeah, yeah. the, the lack of intimacy throughout this film, um, is a really interesting, even, even just in production design, like the house is beautiful, but there's no, there's nothing lived in about it. You know, like the plastic on the couch is like, a, is again, one of my favorite parts in, in that film. Like they, they do, he does so much to, I mean, 
I, I, it's often talk, talked about as, you know, being very sterile in terms of production design, but I do think that it's more, and, and that's true, but I, again, like, I think it's more about creating these spaces that are just completely void of any degree of warmth or intimacy, um, and that so much of what exists there is is what's supposed to exist there if you imagine what, you know, success and achievement looks like, but there's no emotion connected yeah. to any of that. You know, it, it's literally just like, you know, it, it's like you're playing like doll, you know, like, like all these things are all, they might as well be imaginary because they're, yes, they are physically there, but they're not connected to, um, they're not truly connected to any, any real emotion, you know, even just as objects. Yeah, no, it's neither of them worked on it. They had a decorator do it. They moved yeah. in, it was finished. It tells you everything about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it also tells you what they are not bringing into their own home, which is mm-hmm. any kind of life. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I, I, the first time I saw it, I thought, oh, well, obviously the house is killing them. Yeah. And then he doesn't get sick. Yeah. And yeah. it's just not that. Yeah. And it's, it's, again, it's one more thing where it, you were presented with a solution, which is then pulled away from you the same way it's pulled away from her. And that yeah. there is no safety. There is no reassurance in not knowing. Yeah, and which, again, is one of the things I love in terms of subverting your expectation of what you expect this film to be, which I think if it was an easier film from, like, a progressive liberal filmmaker would be this idea that, yes, there's more like this monolithic force, this sort of invisible force that um, that is essentially a stand-in for, uh, like successful, affluent suburban America and the toxicity of that. And that that is what is, is killing these people or affecting these people. And that, and that's like, again, because I think like we want those type of answers. They're very convenient. And, and, and that, you know, when you start watching the film again, this is, I, I, already stated this but that's what I love so much about it is that's definitely what I I felt the same way too you feel like that's where it's going to and that's where I think it like does an interesting thing when you start to intellectualize it more and you start to look at criticism it does an interesting thing to kind of like challenging any viewer like I don't think that there is ironically I was gonna say I don't think that there's a viewer who is safe um, I didn't mean that to be so on the nose but it is really interesting like I think I love that the audience that it would appeal to the most, and there's just a reality, like, these films are seen mostly by a certain type of audience. That's, you know, I'm sure Todd Haynes, when he made it, didn't think that it was going to, like, you know, be a massive hit in suburban New Jersey or something like that. Um, But I think the audience that would be the most sort of smug and and feel good about that first half of the film, you know, yeah. uh, is really challenged in the second half of the film. And that's what I think, again, is just really extraordinary about that, that it, that it has a quietly has this really beautiful take no prisoners sort of aspect to it. Oh yeah. It's merciless. <laughs> and, uh, and again, the reason why it wouldn't work in the present day, well, you couldn't make it now because now, yeah. unless there's some genius who can pull off a remake and put Gwyneth Paltrow in the lead <laughs> because she's the, she's already the thing. Like there's yeah, already yeah, yeah, an yeah. element out there that is designed to counteract movies like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and designed to tell you that no, life isn't the problem and you aren't the problem and whatever it is, yeah, yeah. it can be fixed by this bespoke honey that we are selling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. the industry. I mean, it pre it prefigures anti-vaxxers. It prefigures yeah. the rise of alternate news and and yeah, yeah. And belief circles and everything, and it's so distressingly on the nose that I, I'm wondering if maybe that's why it went away for a while. It just needed to wait and come back when yeah. it was, when people could start realizing, oh, what was that movie I remember about the the sick person? Mm-hmm. And here we are, and it's te- terrifyingly more relevant than ever. I, I know. I was just actually going to say that it's like almost like a bit horrifying its relevance, yeah. you know, um, and. In terms of especially the the fact that it maybe is speaking more to like universal human symptoms than a moment in time, you know, and yeah. and that's what I think is probably I'm actually literally just thinking this out now. It's not <laughs> so much a thought that I've had had before because I, I've actually probably thought less of it in its historical context because that's not the way I viewed it. It's not how you experienced it, um, but you know, um, but it's very true what you're saying. Um, it, it's one of those things that I think if you look at its relevance now. Um, does speak more to a, a bit a bit of sort of um, I guess just a bit of a, a, a sort of damning um, uh, 
truth about a degree of, of human experience and, 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 and culture in terms of the fact that something like that film isn't just tied to one issue, you know, isn't yeah. tied to, you know, sure, like, obviously Todd, like, yes, it, it's inspired by so much of, I'm sure, what he lived through and, and the friends that he lost and what he experienced through that time and certainly probably feeling under siege himself just being in the middle of that community. Um, well, it's the line from Longtime Companion, right? I feel like something is stalking me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. it's externalized here. He's actually made it into a malevolence that we can't understand. Like, it's mm-hmm. not bloodborne. It's not a disease as we understand it because whatever it is can't be quantified. Mm-hmm. And by trapping us all in that space with her and leaving us where it leaves us, yeah, it's absolutely the most unnerving thing you can imagine. This isn't over and it might never be. Mm-hmm. And this is where we have to go. We mm-hmm. have to leave because it's just beyond this, it's literally unimaginable. I can't show you anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just so I know. It, it, it's 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 really yeah. It's really it's really really fascinating, and it, it's just one that I still think. Um, yeah, I th- I've thought it, it's just an interesting thing in terms of thinking about the holding up factor because again, it's uh, I think maybe the fact that I haven't even thought about it holding up so well over time is sort of you know. Um, case in point in, in the degree that like I've never when I said there is a timeless quality about it like yeah. it, the, yes it is in one way yes it's clearly Reagan era America and it's a very specific place but I think in terms of like a stand-in for a western a western sort of 20th century experience there is a degree of and maybe that maybe it's tied into like a again a bit of a like a masterstroke of just setting in that like California, because of media, becomes that placeholder for all of us as like an understanding of what is a normal view of the world. Right. Like even if even if you've lived in Canada your entire life, like me growing up as a kid in Banff in the mountains and being to California once or twice, but that's like Disneyland vacations as a kid or, or whatever. Right. But um, if you watch TV or you saw we watch movies, TV. you know what Los Angeles is like. Yeah, and, and we understand that, you know, and it, and it doesn't, um, and it shows us a familiar type of Los Angeles too. It doesn't show us like a, an underbelly of Los Angeles right. or something. Um, you know, it shows it, I think, in a unique way and, and I, it looks at it in an interesting way. But I, again, I think that that's something like just even in terms of setting of that film um, and how how used to that space we are and and again this goes back to even just little elements like production design uh, the the fact that that film again when i think of it like this cover we're looking at the criterion uh, cover speaks says so much about the film to me in terms of like this pastel sort of tone which again like it's a small note but i i do think in terms of um just that look and feel of that film as just being like this the whole setting is this remarkable standard bearer for for what is seen as a, a Western norm. And I think, like, even if you're in Europe, because of the way that we have processed and understood the world through so much of the dominance of what Hollywood puts out to the world, right? So the film, in in uh, in on so many... Um, I, I was about to say superficial, but that's not true because it's so important to the formal construction of the film. Um, but on so many of these surface levels, at least, um, is really giving us almost the most, yeah, standard bearer, bland sort of backdrop for this to be set. That, that And I think that, again, that's also probably why it is more um, disquieting and disturbing and unsettling in terms of the way that it it unfolds and the way that it, that it, it operates. Yeah. And it's... The, the impenetrability of those surfaces is something I come back to a lot because mm-hmm. there is no scene behind them. Like mm-hmm. everything is a facade. Mm-hmm. Even Carol mm-hmm. is a facade for herself in a mm-hmm. weird way, which just unpacks into so many other things that are disquieting about the film, yeah. that are unnerving about the film. Yeah. Is that we, we know who she is because we've seen her for two hours by the end of the film. We've experienced her life mm-hmm. with her, but we don't know what's doing it to her. We don't know what it is about her that made her vulnerable. We, we never find the way in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's, that, that's why the ending is so powerful. I think is because who is she talking to? I think that's a totally great point. And I, I think this idea of facade with her is super interesting because, and again, I think this is maybe one of those things that the film operates in an interesting way in terms of how it ends up resonating with a 
to me a, a lot a very universally like I, I think like it's a challenging film sure so it certainly has an audience but I think those people who see it regardless of your background it's amazing how many people can find uh, something to anchor into a character who would seemingly have so little to possibly anchor in because she's almost without a personality mm-hmm. but what I think that comes down to which I'm really interested in is like the performative nature of her life. Like, she knows how to do the performance of her life, right. you know? Um, which, it, like, again, going to the, the people who decorate your house. Like, you have a set. It's like, you. This is, a home is supposed to be, in, in our imagination at least, um, is supposed to be the place that is the, the reflection of ourselves, you know? Like, we, we collect these things, we put these things here because we like them, and it says something about ourselves. And even that is something that is done by other people for her. And, you know, she goes through clearly in the scenes that we see her like at lunch with friends and that type of thing, aerobics classes and those type of things, even though those scenes are often overshadowed with um, the, the menace of, of what is sort of haunting her, um, we see her doing the performative nature of what she needs to do to fit into where she lives very well. You know, she, yeah. she really knows how to do it. And I think that that is... Um, th- but what is interesting about that is she can play the part, but what is left there after you remove the, the performance, right? And that's sort of like what I think is so disturbing and fascinating and in- interesting about the I love you is it's like the I love you is, especially in the context of the new agey sort of uh, way it's framed there, is sort of like this way of saying like I love you to this deepest part of yourself and accepting yourself. But if you don't even understand who you are, that's what is really disturbing about that moment because she's sort of saying that to again this facade of herself that she's sort of been playing out and I think you know obviously the character is an extreme degree but I think that that is something that has a universal element because we all play versions of ourselves in in um, in our lives, I think that you know that has become painfully apparent. With you know, it, and this is a boring example because we all know it, but it is painfully apparent with like how we curate our lives at this day and age because sure. we do it more actively than we did in the past, or it's more obvious how actively we do it. Um, but I think that that is something that is really interesting because when we look at especially things around uh, mental illness and and these type of things uh, in terms of depression, anxiety, and a lot of that, a lot of that stuff is tied to identity. You know what I mean? And um, and I think that there is definitely I'm not saying this is the only element uh, that that sort of resonates, but I do think that there is this very very interesting dynamic in that film that in terms of challenging all of us is sort of challenging us to think about the performative aspect of our life in terms of how we fit into the world around us. And if you peel that back, what version of yourself is behind that, you know, which, which I think is something that's super interesting in that film, because that is one of the most terrifying parts of Carol's. Like if you peel that back, um, who is there? Someone is there. Like we feel for her, but, but, but it's very difficult to understand who is that person who's left over. Yeah. yeah, which is kind of the same thing that Hello Destroyer is about, which leads us perfectly to the last question of the podcast, which <laughs> is, is there anything of safe that you've used, lifted, borrowed, stolen, incorporated into your creative DNA? And if so, what would it be? Man, that's a big question. Yep. Um, because yep. because it, Go out strong. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, no, it's a great one. But, but I mean, that's also a big reason why I chose this film, because there's a lot of it. And I've touched on, on some of it before. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I definitely think, um, as I was saying before, the idea of the big one is the idea of the protagonist who is not who is who is um, doesn't have a lot of agency, and, and that's something that I was really interested in. And in terms of this idea of identity, that is also a, a strong parallel for me in that. Tyson um, Tyson is a character who doesn't know himself very well. Like, he is so... Just like Carol is so defined by her environment, so is he. Um, in terms of someone who... Um, it might have even been in your review, which I actually think was great. Uh, but uh, it, And I apologize if it wasn't your review. Um, but someone... Uh, I think it must have been yours. Talked about how, you know, there's a lack of th- a three-dimensional element to Tyson as a character uh, throughout the film. And that is actually, I, I think it's a fair criticism, but it's also a bit of a deliberate choice in that I don't think he's a character who really knows himself very well at this point, you know? Um, and And to me, so much of his identity in our film, much like Carol, is defined by what is around him and how he feels like he fits into that place. 
but he doesn't really know himself that well, which, you know, this is a bit different than safe, but like that leads to his ultimate crisis, which is a lot about an inability to communicate because I don't think he doesn't really have the skills to do that. He's only been taught to communicate in one way, you know, sort of through violence. So, you know, when he needs to ask for help, that's why he's enacting violence upon himself because that's really the only tools he has. But it comes back to this core thing, which I think is like a really haunting, powerful... Um, powerful sort of crisis for for a character or for us as people is when we feel like we're not grounded in some sort of sense of guiding force for ourselves you know um so that's like i don't i don't know i've always been interested i i often write very passive characters i don't i don't very often write characters who drive narrative and drive story like i really because i i don't know i i mean yeah i i guess i make a ton of decisions in my life and you know that sort of thing but i i just think that the sort of hero's journey type of narrative that we often are on in so many films is is sort of a bit removed from reality of life. There's just so much of our lives that is dictated by conditions that we're reacting to. Not all characters are, uh, not all characters, not all people are as passive as characters like Carol and Tyson are, of course. Um, But I do think that it's one of those things that I think there is a lot less agency in a lot of our lives than we like to imagine that we maybe have. So that sounds fair. Yeah, there's that. And, and I mean, and then the big thing is just formal qualities, you know, like, like just the way I I definitely say it it operates in different ways, but especially the sound design stuff. And we talked a lot about that, but so much of the things that we love, I've tried to employ and lift directly from that in terms of, in terms of storytelling in, in, in my film as well. So, yeah. It did strike me, you'd mentioned this earlier as well, that Tyson doesn't really know what to say to people. And Mm -hmm. I find it fascinating that now if you remade, well, what Tyson does is that he says what people think. Yeah. He says what he thinks people People want want him to say. say. Yeah. And it's always this boilerplate cliche. Yeah. And it never helps him, not once. No, no. (laughs) Uh, Never. (laughs) And Carol doesn't even know how to articulate what's happening to her. And if you remade Safe now, she would. Like, she'd have an entire lexicon of, of... Sure, stuff, yeah. and it wouldn't help her either. Yeah, yeah. Whatever it is, isn't the thing that she thinks it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because she would, she would be able to source information. Yeah. yeah. If you really made safe now, like probably two quarters of the first half would be her on a computer, like <laughs> like researching stuff. So I'm glad it's not set now. It would be, yeah. that, that's hard to watch. Although um, you, you could get a solid ending, or if she's she's walking around reading an iPad and just walks into traffic, at least yeah, at least true, it's over. True. Maybe that's what I'll try and do. You know, I'll try and somehow do this version of Safe as my next film, <laughs> the <laughs> remake of Safe. Okay. No, that would be terrible. Um, uh, no, but I think it's a very interesting point, and you know, and and I don't know, like. It, it's a it it seems like a a contradiction that like characters who are very passive and like I said without much agency would be more complex or interesting, but I think they are you know because I like motivation is an easy thing to understand you know if if we have stakes and and we're like I need this person needs to do this and this because of this you know. Right. Uh, a plus B equals C. We the, have the, three days to get we to the boat yeah. before the before the monkey kills. Yeah, us. and that's compelling. You know, it, like, it is compelling because we we can understand that. But what is more compelling to me is again, I think that there, and this one thing I feel about film in general, I think you know, if there's one thing that's true to storytelling for me at least is the idea that humans are inherently curious and we want to figure things out. We want the, like, that's the success of our species, right? Like we have a, we have this profound degree of curiosity and we want to work through things. And so that's what really interests me about characters like this is I think, again, as long as you're not too, um, condescending or pretentious, um, in, in terms of how you treat it, because you can be really alienating. And that's again, where I I think it can become problematic, but I, I do think you, an audience will give you a lot of leeway um, in terms of ambiguity um, if if they feel, or with these type of characters, if they feel like there's some entry point for them to try and figure it out. Whether or not you reach a conclusive um, answer or whether or not they reach the answer that maybe I would reach, that to me is irrelevant. But like, I do think that there's a way to invite people in to engage more with these type of characters based on just the fact that we want to figure things out. And, and that was like a fundamental thing to the construction of the narrative of my film, um, which again is like, I think 
think, very true in this film. Um, I don't know if that, that's a philosophy that Haynes has by any means, but I mean, from my experience of watching that film, that's what it felt like to me. So, I mean, realistically, I, it's a big question because I can say, like, there's probably ten things that I stole, like, not, not ten little moments, ten big ideas and things that I've stolen from Safe and probably will, I'm sure I will continue to for the rest of my career. <laughs> It's pretty rich. I mean, there's a vein in there. There's a lot. Oh, yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot there. And uh, I I just, I guess it's one of those films that I marvel at so much in terms of intention of direction. Like, I I really, and maybe that's like a big, um, when you were talking about this before, this is another element that I love about Haynes. Like, my background was, I went to art school instead of film school. um, And uh, I think Haynes went to film school, but definitely studied art and you know he's he's obviously very connected to a lot of modern artists and modern art tradition sure. um in America and um one thing that I've always really loved about his work and that I think a lot about in terms of my own in terms of writing and composition and and just construction of narrative is I really do love his like deep investment in semiotics and the idea that that there is much like art that there is information and intent there can be information and intention in every gesture and and every gesture in terms of every decision that you're making you know i really like to me that's a very uh, just as a general approach that's a very exciting um an engaging way to to make a film you know that that there are a lot like for for example there are to me there's a focus in terms of what I'm interested in on the film in terms of exploring some systemic issues of violence in our, in our culture and, and a degree degree of cultural culpability um, that exists there. But even, you know, I I wanted to make a film that was very Canadian. Um, And so, you know, uh, hockey is a bit tongue in cheek of choosing a hockey film because I also think that it's kind of the worst cliche stereotype uh, of English Canadian film so there's a playfulness but like that institution was something I needed I I mean if I was doing it in the States it would probably be like the military for example but you know one thing that Haynes does so well that was something I've definitely thought about in terms of more on the semiotic side is the degree of you know I'm making a film about violence that's specifically placed in Canada so even if I don't want it to take over the film or be the focus of the film because it wasn't this film in particular not commenting or have some allusion towards colonial history and colonial violence that we're living within and the legacy of that um was really important to me. So, like, choosing the name The Warriors and having that iconography that is uh, Indigenous Canadian in the headdress and those type of things, and we obviously have one Indigenous Canadian character in there, um, who, which, again, was a very deliberate thing in terms of being dominated by mostly white men in that film, yeah. e- even e- including the exclusion of women in that film. That was, like, a very deliberate choice in terms of this setting up this very sort of um, patriarch patriarchal sort of structure of the world that we were looking at um but you know that having being able to find ways to comment on that stuff that is in the dna of your film where it's important and present but also especially with the with the warrior stuff it's like something that is completely visible and on the surface but equally as invisible in terms of what it's actually talking about. Right. And I think that, again, that's something that I would say Haynes does in this film and, in, and probably in all of his work. He's he's so good at staying very focused on the story he's telling, but giving you so many strands to, to follow in terms of the way that it interacts with other... Um, with other ideas and, and other issues and, and that sort of thing. So... Yeah, it, that that is maybe more of just an inspiration that I then try and take into some of my own work. So, yeah, well, I'm glad you're putting it out there for people to pick up because it's important. You know? Yeah, it yeah, shouldn't just be one thing. There, no, so no, because life there. is not like that. You know what I mean? I think that we are constantly confronting. Um, even if you want to be issue based on anything, even if you want, even if you think you have a political agenda on one thing, like the world is so interconnected that there is just a degree of these things crossing over and being related to each other and and referencing each other that I think it's very hard to be incredibly prescriptive or want to be so direct that you feel like you can keep it contained in in one you know in in one specific sort of stream of thought or stream of conversation i think that that is is probably a a nearly impossible task to to do yeah 
<laughs> My thanks to Kevin Funk, whose feature debut Hello Destroyer is playing at the TIFF Bell Lightbox in Toronto and the Mayfair Theatre in Ottawa right now. And it's booked at the Van City Theatre in Vancouver, March 21st and 25th. More screenings are planned across Canada over the spring, so check out hellodestroyer.net for the full list. And if you're curious about the short film that inspired Kevin's feature, just search Vimeo for Destroyer, and you can watch it there. You can find Kevin on Twitter at Kevin Funk, Kevin with an A in all one word, and you can find Safe on DVD and Blu-ray in a pristine special edition from the Criterion Collection. Oh, and here's something interesting. The movie was originally released with surround sound, and the initial Laserdisc and DVD did feature a Matrix surround audio. But the Criterion editions, approved by Haynes himself, only offer mono audio. So, that's interesting. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. Last week's episode kind of poked us in the stats, so, you know, let's keep that going. That was cool. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.